Chapter Thirteen of A Red Wallflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. A Red Wallflower by Susan Warner. Chapter Thirteen. Letters. And so life seemed for many days to the child. She could not shake off the feeling, nor regain any brightness of spirit. Dull, dull, everything in earth and heaven seemed to be. The taste and savor had gone out of all her pleasures and occupations. She could not read without the image of Pitt coming between her and the page. She could not study without an unendurable sense that he was no longer there, nor going to be there to hear her lessons. She had no heart for walks where every place recalled some memory of Pitt and what they had done or said there together. She shunned the box of coins and hardly cared to gather one of the few lingering fall flowers, and the last of them were soon gone, for the pleasant season was ended. Then came rains and clouds and winds, and Esther was shut up to the house. I can never tell how desolate she was. Truly she was only a girl of thirteen, she ought not to have been desolate perhaps for any no greater matter she had her father and her books in her youth but esther had also a nature delicate and deep far beyond what is common and then she was unduly matured by her peculiar life intercourse with light-hearted children like herself had not kept her thoughtless and careless at thirteen esther was looking into life and finding it already confused and dark at thirteen also she was learning and practicing self-command her father not much of an observer unless in the field of military operations had no perception that she was suffering it never occurred to him that she might be solitary he never knew that she needed his tenderest care and society and guidance he might have replaced everything to esther so that she would have found no one at all he did nothing of the kind he was a good man just and upright and highly honorable but he was selfish like most men he lived to himself in his own deprivation and sorrow and never thought but that esther would in a few days get over the loss of her young teacher and companion he hardly thought about it at all the idea of filling pitt's place of giving her in his own person what left her when pitt went away did not enter his head indeed he had no knowledge of what pitt had done for her if he had known it there is little doubt it would have excited his jealousy. For it is quite in some people's nature to be jealous of another's having what they do not want themselves. And so Esther suffered in a way and to a degree that was not good for her. Her old, dull, spiritless condition was creeping upon her again. She realized, more than it is the way of thirteen-year-olds to realize, that something more than an ocean of waters, an ocean of circumstances, had rolled itself between her and the one friend and companion she had ever had. Pitt said he would return, but four or five years, for all present purposes, is a sort of eternity at her age. Hope could not leap over it, and expectation died at the brink. Her want of comfort came back in full force. But where was the girl to get it? The sight of Mr. and Mrs. Dallas used to put her in a fever. Once in a while the two would come to make an evening call upon her father, and then esther used to withdraw as far as possible into a corner of the room and watch and listen watch the looks of the pair with a kind of irritated fascination and listen to their talk with their heart jumping and throbbing in pain and anxiety 
and passionate longing, for they were Pitt's father and mother, and only the ocean of waters lay between him and them, which they could cross at any time. He belonged to them, and could not be separated from them, all of which would have drawn Esther very near to them, and made them delightful to her, but that she knew very well they desired no such approach. Whether it was simply because she and her father were dissenters, Esther could not tell. Whatever the reason, her sensitive nature and discerning vision saw the fact. They made visits of neighborly politeness to the one English family that was within reach, but more than politeness they desired neither to give nor receive. I suppose it was this perception which made the sight of the pair so irritating to Esther. They were near Pitt, but they did not wish that she should be. Esther kept well at a distance, but with all this they talked of their son perpetually, of his voyage, of his prospects, of his grand-uncle at Kensington, of his career in college, or at the university, rather, and of his possible permanent remaining in the old country, at any rate, of his studying there for a profession. The colonel was only faintly interested, and would take up his book with a sigh of relief when they were gone but Esther would sit in passionate misery, not shedding any tears, only staring with her big eyes at the lyre in a sort of fixed gravity most unfit for her years. The months went heavily. Winters were rather severe and very long at Seaforth. Esther was much shut up to the house. It made things all the harder for her. To the colonel it made no difference. He lay upon his couch, summer or winter, and went on with his half-hearted reading, Half a heart was all he brought to it, while Esther would stand at the window, watching the snow drive past, or the beating down of the rain, or the glitter of the sunbeams upon a wide white world, and almost wonder at the thought that warm lights and soft airs and flowers and walks and botanizing had ever been out there, where now the glint of the sunbeams on the snow crystals was as sharp as diamonds, and all vegetable life seemed to be gone forever. Pitt had sailed in November various difficulties having delayed his departure to a month later than the time intended for it. Therefore news from him could not be looked for until the new year was on its way. Towards the end of January, however, as early as could possibly be hoped, a letter came to Colonel Gainsborough, which he immediately knew to be in his hand. No postmark, he said, surveying it. I suppose it came by private opportunity. Papa, you look a long while at the outside, said Esther who stood by, full of excited impatience, which she knew better than to show. "'The outside has its interest, too, my dear,' said her father. "'I was looking for the Lisbon postmark, but there is none whatever. It must have come by private hand.' He broke the seal, and found within an enclosure directed to Esther, which he gave her, and Esther presently left the room. Her father, she saw, was deep in the contents of his letter, and would not notice her going, while if she stayed in the room she knew she would be called upon to read her own letter or to show it before she was ready. She wanted to enjoy the full first taste of it, slowly and thoroughly. Meanwhile, the colonel never noticed her going. Pitt's letter was dated, Lisbon, Christmas Day, 1813, and ran as follows. My dear colonel, I have landed at last, as you see, in this dirtiest of all places I ever was in. I realize now why America is called the New World, for everything here drives the consciousness upon me that the world on this side is very old. So old, I should say, that it is past cleansing. 
I do suppose it is not fair to compare it with Seaforth, which is as bright in comparison as if it were an ocean shell shining with pure lights. But I certainly hope things will mend when I get to London. But I did not mean to talk to you about Lisbon, which I suppose you know better than I do. My hope is to give you the pleasure of an early piece of news. Probably the papers will already have given it to you, but it is just possible that the chances of weather and ships may let my letter get to you first, and in that case my pleasure will be gained. There is great news. Napoleon has been beaten. Beaten? Isn't that great? He has lost a hundred thousand men, and is driven back over the Rhine. Holland has joined the Allies and the Prince of Orange, and Lord Wellington has fought such a battle as history hardly tells of. Seven days fighting and the victory ranks with the greatest that ever were gained. That is all I can tell you now, but it is so good you can afford to wait for further details. It is now more difficult than ever to get into France, and I don't know yet how I am going to make my way to England. It is specially hard for Americans, and I must be reckoned an American, you know. However, money will overcome all difficulties. Money and persistence. I have written to Esther something about my voyage, which will, I hope, interest her. I will do myself the pleasure of writing again when I get to London. Meanwhile, dear sir, I remain, ever your grateful and most obedient, William Pitt Dallas. Esther, while her father was reveling in this letter, was taking a very different sort of pleasure in hers. There was a fire upstairs in her room. She lit a candle, and in the exquisite sense of having her enjoyment all to herself, was slowly over the lines, as slowly as she could. Lisbon, Christmas Day, 1813. My dear little Esther, if you think a voyage over the sea is in anything like a journey by land, you are mistaken. The only one thing in which they are alike is that in both ways you get on. But wheels go smoothly, even over a jolty road, and waves do nothing but toss you, it was just one succession of rollings and pitchings from the time we left New Bedford till we got sight of the coast of Portugal. The wind blew all the time almost a gale, rising at different points of our passage to the full desert of the name. One violent storm we had, and all the rest of the voyage we were pitching about at such a rate that we had to fight for our meals. Tables were broken, and coffee and chocolate poured about with a reckless disregard of economy. For about half the way it rained persistently. So altogether you may suppose, Queen Esther, that my first experience has not made me in love with the sea. But it wasn't bad, after all. The wind drove us along, that was one comfort, and it would have driven us along much faster if our sails had been good for anything. But they were rotten set, a match for the crew, who were a rascally band of Portuguese. However, we drove along, as I said, seeing nobody to speak to all the way except ourselves, not a sail in sight nearer than eight or ten miles off. Well, the 23rd we sighted land, to everybody's great joy, you may suppose. The wind fell, and that night was one of the most beautiful and delicious you can imagine. A smooth sea without a ripple, a clear sky without a cloud, stars shining down quietly, and air as soft as may at Seaforth. I stood on deck half the night, enjoying, and thinking of five hundred thousand things one after another. Now that I was almost setting my foot on a new world, my life, past and future, seemed to rise up and confront me, and I looked at it and took counsel with it, as it were. Seaforth on one side, and Oxford on the other. 
The question was, what should William Pitt be between them? The question never looked so big to me before. Somehow, I believe, the utter perfection of the night suggested to me the idea of perfection generally, what a moral may come to when at his best. Such a view of nature as I was having puts one out of conceit, I believe, with whatever is out of order, unseemly or untrue, or what for any reason misses the end of his existence. Then, rose the question, what is the end of existence? But I did not mean to give you my moralizings, Queen Esther. I have drifted into it. I can tell you, though, that my moralizing got a sharp emphasis the next day. I turned in at last, leaving the world of air and water a very image of peace. I slept rather late, I suppose, was awakened by the hoarse voice of the captain calling all hands on deck, in a manner that showed me there must be urgent cause. I tumbled up as soon as possible. What do you think I saw? The morning was as fair as night had been. The sea was smooth, the sun shining brilliantly. I suppose the colonel would tell you that seas may be too smooth, Anyhow, I saw the fact now. There had been not wind enough during the night to make our sails of any use. A current had caught us, and we had been drifting, drifting, till now it appeared we were drifting straight onto a line of rocks, which we could see at a little distance, made known both to eye and ear, to the former by a line of white where the waves broke upon the rocks, and to the latter by the thundering noise the breakers made. Now you know... Where waves break, a ship would stand very little chance of holding together. But what were we to do? The only thing possible we did. Let out our anchors. But the question was, would they hold? They did hold, but none too soon. For we were left riding only about three times our ship's length from the threatening danger. You see, we had a drunken crew. No proper watch was kept. The captain was first roused by the thunder of the waves dashing upon the rock, and then nothing was ready or in order, and before the anchors could be got out, we were where I tell you. The anchors held, but we could not tell how long they would hold, nor how soon the force of the waves would drag us, cables and all, to the rocks. There we sat and looked at the view and situation. We hoisted a signal and fired guns of distress, but we were in front of a rocky shore that gave us little hopes of either being of avail. At last, after three hours of this, the captain and some of the passengers got into the yawl and went off to find help. We, left behind, stared at the breakers. After three more hours had gone, I saw the yawl coming back, followed by another small boat, and further off by four royal pilot boats with sails. I saw them with a glass, that is, from my station in the rigging. When they came up, all the passengers except half a dozen, of whom I was one, were transferred to the pilot boats. You should have heard the jabber of the Portuguese when they came on board, but the captain had determined to try to save his brig, as by this time a slight breeze had sprung up, and I stayed with some of the others to help in the endeavor. When the rest of the passengers were safe on board the pilot boats, we set about our critical undertaking. Sails were spread, one anchor hoisted, the cable of the other cut, and we stood holding our breath to see whether wind or water would prove strongest. But the sails drew, the brig slowly fell off before the wind, and we edged away from our perilous position. Then, when we were fairly off, there rose a roar of shouts that rent the air, for the boats had all waited, lying a few rods off, 
to see what would become of us. Queen Esther, I can tell you, if I had been a woman, I should have sat down and cried. What I did, I won't say. As I look back to the scene of our danger, there was a most lovely rainbow spanning it, showing in the cloud of spray that rose above the breakers. At six o'clock on Christmas Eve, I landed at Lisbon, where I got comfortable quarters in an English boarding house. When I can get to London, I do not yet know. I am here at a great time to see history as it is, taking shape in human life and experience. Something different from looking at it as cast in the bronze or silver in former ages, and pecked up in a box of coins. Hey, Queen Esther? But that's good, too, in its way. Your father will tell you the news. Your devoted subject, William Pitt Dallas. End of chapter 13. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.